I'm Jackie McGuire, and this is my podcast, Mind Brew. I'm a clinical psychologist with a passion for science communication. What does that mean? Well, it means I not so secretly love researching psychological studies, translating them into easy-to-understand concepts, and providing practical strategies to optimise personal well-being, work, and relationships. Put simply, Mindbrew has been created to help you live the good life. This episode focuses on grit, a person's passion and perseverance to reach long-term goals. I'm joined by two guests, Angela Duckworth and Kelly Layton. Angela Duckworth is the founder and CEO of Character Lab, a not-for-profit whose mission is to advance scientific insights that help children thrive. She's also a professor of psychology at the University of Pennsylvania, faculty co-director of Penn Wharton Behaviour Change for Good Initiative, and faculty co-founder of Wharton's People Analytics. She's advised the White House, the World Bank, NBA and NFL teams, and Fortune 500 CEOs. Her TED Talk is amongst the most viewed of all time, with over 20 million hits. And her book, Grit, The Power of Passion and Perseverance, is a number one New York Times bestseller. Kelly Layton is a New Zealand educator, guiding young learners in our public school system. She's currently completing her Master's in Learner Agency. In this episode, get ready to percolate on your life as you know it now, and what life may look like moving forward. Have you identified your passion? And if not, where the heck do you go hunting for it? Do you have big picture goals you work on on a long-term basis? And if not, how do you strengthen your motivation, your perseverance, your agility? Where does grit feature in our education system? And as an adult, can you enhance it? I personally learnt a lot in both of these discussions. I hope you do too. Angela, it's so wonderful to have you with us today. For those New Zealanders who maybe don't know who you are, it'd be wonderful if you could give us an introduction of who you are and what you research. I am a psychologist. I work mostly with kids in their teenage years. I am a professor and I've mostly been studying the psychology of effort. So when a teenager or younger kid tries really hard, you know, what's going on in their head? And when they give up or don't try as hard as they could, what's going on then? So that's really been my preoccupation. And that's because I come to psychology from teaching and I was not a great, um, well, I didn't do as much good as I wanted to, I think in part because I wasn't very skilled at getting my kids to keep trying when I knew they really could. So being able to see somebody's potential, but hook into their ability to use it. Yeah, I mean, I think that there is, to me, something really interesting. You know, when a kid gives up on something and and you and your heart know as a grown-up that they could have gone so much farther, I used to just sort of tell kids, like, well, you should work harder or, like, you know, you can do it. But that's really actually pretty ineffectual. And I think it's the only thing you say or can say when you don't really know what's going on. Mm. But now, as a scientist, I'm really interested in, you know, do they believe that they can change or maybe they don't believe they can change. Maybe that's why they give up. And then you don't say like, just keep trying, right? Then you start to ask questions about what kids really believe is possible. In other words, I think where a lot of us who care about young people can get better is like understanding where their behavior comes from. And that's always the first step to try to like help change behavior. It's interesting though, isn't it? Because it's the same with adults. If you're in a relationship and you want your partner 
to change a behaviour. I mean, you can talk blue in the face about asking them to change, but it really has to come from within or from their value system in order to really kickstart off that behaviour change sequence. Well, I do think there is a lot to say about like having the motivation to change. So if someone tells you like, did you know that you could, and I've done this before, by the way, done these interventions that didn't work where you tell kids like, you know, you could turn your phone off or you could put it on a high shelf, but they already knew that. They just don't care. They're, not all kids, but the students in my study were like, so? So I, I agree, but I don't, I wouldn't maybe put it the same way you did, which is, I do think we can, in psychologically wise ways, get them to the point where they care and then teach them a lot of things that are useful. So influencing, we're using psychological education to influence. Yeah, I think so, in a hopefully respectful way. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Currently at the moment in New Zealand, we've just come out of lockdown. I'm not quite sure where you're up to. We are not yet out of lockdown. Not, okay. yeah, yeah, good for you. We've emerged into this kind of abnormal normal, which is workplaces and retail are back online, but we still have to stay distanced. And, you know, they're trying to get kids in school to follow hygiene practices and maybe not be all over each other. And how do you manage that with children, etc. So we're kind of adapting to this new normal. And I think you know, many people have what I've been calling post-COVID resolutions as they exit lockdown. <laughs> and, you know, it's interesting when you think about effort and shaping the future you want. You know, I think it's a really interesting point in time for people's lives at the moment. Mm, so what are these post-COVID resolutions like? Can you tell me more about that? Many people here, I think, have actually enjoyed the pause They've enjoyed their exit from hustle culture mm-hmm. and lots of people have been discussing about how they take some of those elements of peacefulness, of really deep connection with family or friends, with saying no to, to social mm-hmm. engagements, to really kind of slowing down their lives and focusing on what their priorities are in life rather than getting caught up in the expectations and habit around kind of spreading themselves thin. Yeah, that's really interesting. You know, there's a research literature on habits, right? So habits are things that you just do and you don't even think about them and they're kind of mindless and automatic and you brush your teeth, you know, for a lot of people, a lot of their work day or, you know, how you got to work. And those were all disrupted during the lockdown for you. They're still being disrupted for us in the United States because most of, well, I don't know about most of the United States. We're in lockdown in Philadelphia. But one of the things interesting studies on habit that was done was on uh, people in London who were commuting on the London tube. Mm. And this is not my study, by the way, but there was a strike. And so for two days, the people who used a certain part of the lines, like couldn't use those lines. So they had to do something different. That's essentially what's happened to us in a way, Mm. like a disruption in your routine that is kind of imposed on you. So what happened afterwards is that, of course, the tube starts running again and everybody goes. And about 5%, I think, of the commuters actually discovered a new way to get to work that was just better than what they did before. They just, you know, have a new habit. And I think for many people, Mm. and of course, not to diminish the suffering and the both on the health and the economic side, but also there is somewhat of a silver lining. And I think a lot of people learned a lot. And they might not go back to exactly the way they were doing it. Like, oh, I'm just going to go back to my mindless habits. I think for a lot of people, they're like, oh, they use the pause to stop and reflect and then maybe in a way improve some of the things they were doing. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree, Angela. The other large one is New Zealanders are renowned for how much money they spend on coffee. And I think many people are reassessing that they now don't mind perhaps homemade coffee rather than their multiple cups they buy from the cafe a day. Oh, I didn't know that about New Zealanders. (laughs) Yeah, we are the best coffee makers in the world, Angela. So if you ever come here, 
we'll get you a flat white. Oh my gosh, I need to come and visit. <laughs> I really like coffee. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay, good. As you listen to this podcast with Angela and reflect on your time in lockdown, your post-COVID resolutions, the habits and routines that you have, I really encourage you to sit and reflect on what you learn about yourself during lockdown and your life. Were there elements that you really enjoyed or aspects of your life that you really missed? For me, I learned that it's okay working alongside being a mum, that I don't need to categorically split my life into either mum or worker in complete segregation, that when I work and experience a sense of purpose in my professional life, I can still remain a dedicated mum. I've also learnt that I really enjoyed my increased family time and that as a unit of three, we want to continue prioritising this going forward. Practically, that means we are going to have to carve out and safeguard our family-only time where we don't book in brunches or lunches or say yes to every invitation that comes through. I also surprised myself at how much I didn't miss consumerism. When we entered level two and we got our first takeout or ate at a restaurant, I was often disappointed and seemed to be thinking, wow, did that meal really cost me $15? Was that coffee actually burnt and my one I made at home was better? Prior to COVID, I was habituated to swiping and expecting to pay for average. I'm telling you, I'm just not prepared to do that anymore. I'd encourage you to either hit the pause button now or set yourself a post-podcast task to sit and reflect on what you enjoyed, what you missed, and what you want your life to look like and feel like post-COVID. With conscious effort, planning, and routine, I believe we are all able to shape our pathways moving forward. So Andrew, I want to bring you to probably what you're most well-known for in the psychological field or by others in the public community, and that is around your work with grit. From your words, grit is a combination of passion and perseverance. And from what I've read and what I've seen and heard you talk on, it would be your research that said you can have somebody that's talented, but then you can have somebody that's passionate and persevering with their passion and they're more likely to kind of outshine or become successful than those with just talent. And I'm wondering if you could break down for our listeners the passion and the perseverance. Yeah, this is my um, perspective. I won't speak for all scientists, and I know some of them probably disagree with me. But what I think is that one of the hallmarks of high achievers across well any field I've studied is that they they have this combination of passion and perseverance for really long term goals. And I think passion is different from perseverance, but the, it has the same sense of commitment. Perseverance is maybe a little more straightforward. So we'll start there. You know, it's being resilient. It's being a really hard worker, you know, practicing really hard. I mean, putting in those hours and doing things when things aren't easy. But the passion side is different. I think it is having an allegiance to something. It's having almost like a voluntary preoccupation. You're so interested in it and it's so important to you. And it doesn't mean that you always do exactly the same thing. So you might be passionate about communicating or you might be passionate about helping kids. So it doesn't mean that you have no flexibility, but it means that there's a kind of a through line 
uh, or even a personal mission statement to what you're trying to do. And anyway, I do find it to be different, at least when I measure it using a questionnaire called the grit scale. I do find passion and perseverance to be different from measures of talent, like mm-hmm. intelligence or physical ability. And I find it to be consistently predictive of being successful. I'll just say, because I think you would have been able to look up a lot of that on the internet, but since I'm with you in person, let me just say that, you know, one of the things that is hard to communicate, but I really want to, is that when you look at these scientific studies of predicting, say, you know, who graduates from college or, you know, who makes it to the top of this competition, you can publish a study showing that grit is predictive, and I have. But I think it's really also important to know that most of the variation in this outcome, like who won, who didn't win, is actually not explained by any of the variables that scientists measure. In other words, life is really hard to predict. And yeah, gritty people may on average do better, but there's a lot of our kind of destiny, if you will, that is not predictable by scientists. So a lot of people, I think, would give some hope and comfort, right? That like, you know, Does that mean some of it's predicted by luck? Well, could either be luck or just that the dynamics are really complicated, Mm. right? So for example, you know, I look out my window and it doesn't look like it's going to rain, right? So I am pretty sure it's not going to rain the next five minutes. But if you say like, oh, given what you know, looking out your window and like you might have a fancy instrument for knowing how hard the wind is blowing, can you tell me what the weather will be like in six years? You know, and if you think about a kid, like that's kind of what it is. It's like, well, you got this little kindergartner and they're doing X, Y, and Z. But if someone says like, what do you think they're going to grow up to be? Mm. I mean, as a scientist, I'll say, well, you know, I can say some things, but most of it is like, it's not just luck. It's just that there's so many complex dynamics that it's kind of beyond what a scientist today anyway is very good understanding. So I just think we should have also a lot of humility. Like grit's not the only thing. Sure. It's not like, oh, this kid's like not gritty. Oh, they'll never do anything in life. It's it's not nearly as strong. And you also don't know what life happens to those individuals, right? So someone could have a traumatic event and someone that's on one path all of a sudden takes path B, you know, and their life alters. Yeah, and there could be good events, it could be bad events. And one of the things that psychologists like to remind all of us about is that the situation is very powerful. So if you think about yourself in at your best, right, and the sort of people who bring out your best, and then if you think about yourself at your worst, and the kinds of situations that bring out your worst. And by the way, during the pandemic, we've probably had a little bit of both, you know, mm-hmm. times where like we were our best selves, and then for me anyway, personally, like a lot of times I was like my worst self. So that's also a factor. So yeah, life is very complex. People are very complex. And I do study grit and I believe in grit, but I don't want to paint like a caricature of the research that says like, oh, it's this is the be all and end all. It's the be all and end all. It's absolutely not. And I had a wonder, Angela, in terms of children's baselines when they come into the world, whether it be economic status, family dynamics, opportunities they've had, role models, etc. And I know lots of your work has studied and, and spoken with people who are like in the top echelon of what they do. They are they have made it. And my wonder was, does it matter where those people start, which I suppose is a continuation of this conversation. If I've come from really challenging backgrounds and I have grit, does that enable me to get to average compared to someone that starts at a higher point and that enables them to get to super successful or not? 
That is such an excellent question. I wish I had a really simple answer based on my own data, but I don't. I I can give you a guess because I haven't actually studied what you're saying, right? And and my guess is, well, I don't think you need my guess to know that, you know, the structural opportunities that are outside of you as a person, mm-hmm. you know, how rich your parents are and how connected they are and, you know, what neighborhood you grew up in and how well prepared were your teachers, et cetera, that we know, you don't need my speculation, makes an enormous difference in mm. what happens to people. And generally, by the way, more advantage is better. Some people are like, oh, maybe adversity, you know, is good for your development. The kind of adversity where people have lack of opportunity and have more chaos, and like, mm. that's not good. I mm. mean, no psychologist will tell you that that kind of adversity helps you build character. It's it's really... Challenging. Uh, it's really, yeah, it's really damaging. And then the question is like, if you take two equally gritty people and like one has opportunity and one doesn't like exact. So I don't, I haven't run that study to see like what would happen, but I do think it's a good question. And I really, really don't think that any of this research on individual differences in grit, you know, uh, like of these a thousand people who are the grittiest is in any way a reason not to invest in opportunity. Like, mm-hmm. in fact, to the contrary, like I, as a psychologist, think that it's all about like how caring the people are around you, how many opportunities you have to be successful. Human beings are really interesting to me in part because we're born knowing nothing, really, and it takes us so long to grow up. I mean, it's just kind of ridiculous compared to other animals. I mean, it takes us decades to figure out how to live on our own and be productive. And that's not true for like any other animal, but because it is true, it means that we, you know, schools matter so much. Parents and families matter so much. Uncles and aunts matter so much, you know, Mm. pastors and rabbis and imams. Like, I just, I think that like kids really need so much investment to be as happy and healthy and helpful as they can be. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because at one surface level, we could go, yeah, you've got a child that's being raised in an opulent family that has all the connections and all the opportunities. And something I used to speak about with a very good friend of mine who was a psychiatrist was opulent neglect. So on the surface, it may look like they've got it all, but how much time and care and presence do their parents have in their life versus, you know, I I read Michelle Obama's book last year and they weren't a wealthy family, but they totally cared about her and her education and they were passionate about her and her brother's success. And, you know, I think they're kind of two classic examples of what you see on the surface might actually not translate for those children behind. That's a great observation. I also read Becoming and I loved it. And um, in my humble opinion, I think Michelle Obama is very gritty. I'd love to meet her someday. I think that what kids need is opportunities that are structural. They also need the kind of wealth that comes from stability, consistency, and unconditional support from parents. And and that isn't a monetary thing per se, right? Like you point out. And and as a parent, you can be, I'm not saying it's easy. I mean, by the way, I would not rate myself a 10 out of 10 parent. And I'm I know my kids would not rate me as a 10 out of 10 parent either. But I'm saying that it's not a material thing, right? To give your kids some consistency for them to know that you're unconditionally supportive. So these things both matter. Kids need structural advantages and opportunities, but they also need you know, something that's not viable with money, which is the, I mean, it's almost impossible, I think, to grow up well without feeling like totally loved, for example. 
For children to thrive and be successful, we've spoken about grit, stability, unconditional positive regard and care. From a psychological perspective, I know that when children have a secure attachment with their primary caregiver, opportunities for challenge and growth, respect, backing and support, they've got a pretty good damn life launch pad. But you and I both know that that is not the case for many New Zealand children. And I'm not just talking from a monetary perspective, where children go without due to low household incomes or opulent neglect. Many Kiwi adults didn't learn about emotional intelligence, values for motivation, growth mindset or high quality relationships. We have a historic culture of toughen up, keep going, do it yourself. There's no blame for parents who haven't heard or role model these concepts. But as a society, I do think we need to bridge the gap so all of our young people can have access to good life launch pads. Which led my thinking to schools. Does our curriculum currently teach psychological skills? Can our teachers help form gritty kids? I put the questions to teacher Kelly Layton. Kelly, welcome. Thank you very much. Good morning. Morning. Kelly, I was thinking about grit and thinking about my own education in the system many years ago. And from my recollection, I don't think there was anything specific about my ability to be resilient or uh, be self-controlled or to manage my mindset or to identify my passions. And so I'm kind of wondering, you know, when my daughter gets to school, what might that look like compared to when I was there? What's changed? One of the things that has changed is, from my experience and from the teachers I talk to, and of course lots and lots and lots of research, is the transparency now that we bring to learning. So you would have been asked to be resilient and you would have been asked to manage self and connect to learners and make choices, but perhaps back in the olden days of probably what was it, the 90s, maybe it wasn't as evident and transparent as it would be made now. So when our learners are finding something hard, we're really explicit. This is, looks like it's really tough, but you know, what does it mean to be resilient? So we name it at the time, you know, so you asked what, what might we see in a school? What we would see is a recognition of the really important thing that is relationship between teachers and learners mm -hmm. because resilience changes over contexts. So where a learner may be incredibly resilient in the arts, maybe not so in maths. You mm -hmm. know, so you have to know your learners and know that this could be an area of challenge. And so what are the scaffolds you're going to put in place to help them be challenged in a way that they are uncomfortable but willing to be uncomfortable. Yeah. So like I'm going to be in that growth phase where you're pushing me just enough so that I can adapt and learn, but not so much that I'm bloody single swim and it's really tough. Uh, yeah, because they, I think a lot of it comes from a self-efficacy and a self-confidence from the learner. So they have to have a bit of self-belief that by putting in the effort, by having that growth mindset, by being resilient, they will be successful. And successful doesn't always mean they get it. Successful means they have adapted and grown in that situation and they feel good about themselves at the end. They've been like, that was hard. That's different to when I was at school because I think the focus back in the olden days was on achievement, was on the end result. Yes. We didn't really talk about the process or the learning or the growing or you didn't go back and say, what did you find tricky and how would you do that next time? Or what did you learn? Like, even through my high school days, I don't think there was that process of self-discovery, reflection. It really was, what was your test mark at the end of the top topic or how is that going to help you in your future? That's really where the focus was. 
I know, and imagine what that's like for someone whose academic skills are not their most prominent successful skills, where the focus is on that all the time. How can you constantly bring up that area of resilience when it feels like where, you know, and I, a lot of the teachers I talk to as well, and certainly in the schools I've worked in, it's not about achievement levels, it's about progress. So mm. what you're talking about is, gosh, you found it really hard and look how much you've changed. And it could be in writing. Look, at the beginning of the year, you're doing this. Look what you're doing now. That's because you put in the work and you were resilient mm -hmm. and you reflected. Resilience isn't alone, so it comes with all those other things. You've already talked about reflection, which is so important, but all the other things that you have to do to be resilient, it's a repertoire of things that mm -hmm. you have to draw on depending on the time and space, you know, and I think that that's what teachers work to. So kids in Classroom Kelly might actually hear words like growth mindset resilience, adaptation, reflection. They might actually hear those words from their teacher in their interactions. Oh, that has been, at our school, we certainly start the first two weeks of every year, at least. We plan explicitly unpacking the brain, unpacking growth mindset. And growth mindset was a buzzword. It's sort of like, because it's so important, you know, and these things sort of amplify and everyone sort of talks about it. And, you know, we really talk about that, Talent, you know, is not innate. You don't have it or you don't. It's something you build and something you grow and something you practice. And what does your brain look like when things are hard? Oh, my gosh, look how much it lights up. And that the first time you do something is probably going to be the hardest time that you have to do it. So next time, because you're building pathways, and we talk about that brain activity. And I know that other schools do that too because I've talked about educators where they have said that growth mindset is the most important thing that they want their learners, that skill and strategy to develop how they wow. bring that growth mindset to everything because no matter what in life, things are hard. And how do you know that you can hit something hard and not fall apart at the thought of what that might feel like you know when that so what we try and do at our school is bring on a bit of productive struggle so we know we plan activities where they're going to be probably a bit tricky and a bit new because it's no good just reading about resilience you've got to kind of live it and yeah. so then we make sure everything's in place to help every learner get through it and feel good at the end because they get something out of it. Kelly's passion is learner agency and she sees this as a fundamental building block of grit and resilience. She often discusses that learners are agentic, but for the rest of us, what does that actually mean? Agentic obviously means we're teaching young people to hold their own agency, their self-efficacy, their ability to be involved in their own learning and to help create that with the teacher. Am I, am I correct in that? Or yeah, um, learners are agentic. What do we provide an environment where they're unable to enact it? You know, that's what we want to make sure we do because when our kids play, when they're at home, when they're doing all these different things, they make a lot of decisions and they drive and they negotiate and they connect and they choose and they reflect and they adapt and they're resilient and persistent and all those wonderful things. And then sometimes classrooms have been set up, you know, it's a bit of an old-fashioned model that suddenly the teacher's in control traditionally. You know, I think things have really, really changed. But traditionally, it, it suddenly it turns into the teachers in control and everyone's learning the same thing. That's what it was like when I was at school. Well, that's what it was like when I'm, I'm thinking, I don't have any agency in my learning when I was young. You just did what the teacher said and we all did the same thing. So, you know, it's hard to be resilient when something's really, really, really hard, you know, or really, really, really easy. Where's the, you know, there's got to be that degree of challenge. So I think with the differentiation and the personalisation of learning now, but the important part of that is the learners are part. 
you know, they help make the decisions. And so therefore they are part of developing their goals, how they're going to get there, who's going to help them. And all those are little things that help. Well, they're little big things, you know, but they're things that happen in classes that help learners grow their resilience. It's really hopeful for me to hear, Kelly, because one of my questions when percolating on grit was, I think, role modelling and learning, being taught, having chance to practice these skills is really important. And, you know, historically, if that wasn't in the classroom, it would have been left to parents. And I think for children, if they haven't got parents that maybe have learned or acquired those skills over their life, then they're missing out. We've got cohorts of children, you know, from my generation or your generation then who are advantaged over others, depending on what skills are reliant in the home. So if this is now being widely taught in schools, if it's a really important part of curriculum, you know, if teachers are going by the end of the year, what I most want for my kids is a a growth mindset in the classroom, then I think that's really hopeful and and it puts our children on more of a playing, a level playing ground as they move forward in life. One of Angela Duckworth's kind of well-known quotes is, as much as talent counts, effort counts twice. And so I'm kind of wondering, do you think it will ever get to the point in the school system where resilience, growth mindset, negotiation, relationships becomes more important than your maths and your science and your English? I would say for for some teachers that is already the case. Mm. They can see that if you feel good about yourself as a learner, even when things are hard, if you know how to seek help from people or tools or places that can help you, if you can choose whether to work with other people or by yourself or how's the best way to share what you've learned or assess and reflect and what was hard and what was good and what do I really know before I start something, I think if you can do all those things that help your learning, help you be resilient, then you will apply that to everything. So subjects are never going to go out. I mean, we always need maths and English and science and PE and help. We need those things for lots of reasons. But I think developing skills and strategies help you be successful in everything that you choose to do. As we're talking, Kelly, I'm kind of recalling a previous conversation we've had, which is the word grit isn't very Kiwi. (laughs) You know, it's very American grit. But here in New Zealand, perhaps it is words like, resilience or growth mindset or adaption or agency that fit more with our culture perhaps in the word grit but the underlying elements passion perseverance are, re- are really important and do hit the mark in our culture I, I'm also thinking Kelly that I know from a psychological behavioral science perspective that when we're working with children and adults role modeling is really important yeah. So when we're wanting uh, people to learn and pick up new skills, it's really important that they see what we do, not just hear what we say. And so completely from a personal perspective, Kelly, when you're with children in the classroom, like what are your top things you are cognizant about role modelling to your kids? yesterday so we've been doing some fairy tale stuff so um this week we did three billy goats gruff and of course the best hands-on activity you can have is to build a bridge for the goats to go across so yesterday we talked about bridges and we've watched this really interesting video about a guy who made this great bridge um science makes excellent science stuff and so we sort of recapped what that might look like and then we sort of handed out a whole bunch of resources and said make a bridge that my goat has to be able to get across And in the meantime, I had remembered that there was this bridge that Leonardo da Vinci had organised, which is sort of like a cantilevered, you just use paddle pop sticks in this situation. And the way you build it is quite strong. And so I thought, I'll build that bridge so the kids can see me doing something new too. 
And I thought this will be a small lesson in resilience that because I don't want learners to think that stuff we do at school is for kids. You know, the stuff we do is important and it's important for everyone. So I thought resilience is important. And so I, I started and I showed them what I was doing because, you know, they were very happy. I'd check in. They were very happy building their bridges. They showed a lot of resilience. It was really hard because we did not have 25 hot glue guns. So they were doing it with sticky tape and skewers. And I tell you, that is a lesson in resilience. <laughs> but I was building my little bridge. Honestly, three hours later, I was still only five steps in. So they'd come up to me and they'd say, what are you up to now? And I said, oh, I think I'm up to about my 33rd try, <laughs> you know. So, But I'd blow my hair and I'd go, oh, and I, I'd need a break and we'd come back, you know. So... Modeling, I agree. Role modeling is really important. Not always being the expert, mm. I think, is another thing that is really helpful. So that when when the learners say something about that's wrong, that's different, I know a different way. I'm like, that's awesome. That really, I help. You know, that helps me learn. I'm going to give that a go. I'm going to try that one. You know, so I'm not the expert in the room. There are many experts in the room, and it just depends what's happening, why, and how. And so, really supporting learners to share their wisdom I think because the area of resilience particularly like I have lots of things I need to work on my resilience and I'm always very transparent with the learners so building Leonardo's bridge was definitely one but across time it's things like art I'm not a very good artist so but I'll say I'm not very good but I like to keep practicing that helps Mm -hmm. me get better we reflect what helps us how's it different you know all those sorts of things so the, the transparency but one of the areas in particular where learners can be find it very challenging is in the area of maths. So I, I worked with some learners and I did some wonderful professional development with Roberta and Jodie Hunter a couple of years ago and reading Joe Bowler's books, who's a mathematician expert in England. She works out of America. And so what they talk about is not so much the mathematical outcomes, but the mathematical dispositions that learners bring. And I found that really helpful for resilience. So what we would start the year with our maths groups was sort of talking about what makes a great mathematician. We talked about things like persistence, being able to talk about what you're doing, being able to challenge people politely, like I disagree with that. Could you please prove that? You know, so you don't put people down. You put, you challenge ideas, explaining your thinking. So oh, that could help me in the boardroom, Kelly. <laughs> Oh, there you go. <laughs> There's lots of good stuff. So what it moves away from is that you have to know your basic facts fast and that you have to do things quickly by yourself. And what it moved to, you were a good mathematician. If you took a long time to solve a problem, you could talk about it, you could challenge each other. So then there was a bit of inbuilt resilience that I could directly see by the, the learners' midterm reflections that they felt they were resilient in maths because they could do these things that were skills and strategies and not answer their basic facts quickly. Of course, that is an important part of what we were working towards, but mm-hmm. when you bring an open mind and when you bring a confidence in yourself to try things that are hard, you're going to apply yourself for longer. Kelly, have you got any thoughts around moving forward? What else might be useful to help build grit, perseverance, passion in our children? One of the things that um, I have found really helpful in my time because I've been lucky to work at schools where we were able to keep students for more than one year so generally for two years and I went to see Nathan Wallace speak and he articulated this really well he sort of talked about minimizing transition Mm. and that one of the ways we can minimize transition is not always change learners every year to a new teacher like why why do we do that Mm. and I felt really pleased 
that we don't do that all the time. Like where possible, we keep the same learners for two years and that has been really, really successful because when you've built that relationship up and there is a culture of trust and appreciating risk-taking, appreciating when things don't quite go as they're expected or, for example, you get an idea. You know, well, like when the kids go up, you know, I was talking about we focus on the mathematical dispositions that aren't about solving basic facts all the time. And so when learners come up and they're not even sure of what the answer might be but they're willing to give it a go because they feel resilient and they were not like that at the start of the year as much because it's a new class, it's a new group, it's a new teacher, you know, and as things are familiar, you can see the next year that they get there quickly, you know, they adapt to the new surroundings quickly because lots of things are familiar, particularly the teacher. Mm. They know how things are going to go. They know the approach. They trust the teacher. The teacher spends a lot of time getting to know and appreciate every learner. So I think one of the things that has definitely worked in my practice over the years has been able to keep the same students for a couple of years. I think what you're talking about is psychological safety. When I know when I feel like there's trust, I'm able to be calm, to learn, to try, because I'm not going to get slammed if I fail or I'm not going to get slammed if I make a mistake. And actually, we need to experiment and learn behaviourally rather than just cognitively to develop that psychological safety. In this podcast, Angela, Kelly and I have spoken about grit, where people possess passion and perseverance for long-term goals. Angela's research has demonstrated that grit predicts achievement in really challenging and personally meaningful contexts. And that whilst talent and luck matter to success, they by no means are predictors of grit. Of course, it's really important to remember a wide lens approach, accounting for that many factors contribute to an individual's life path, like opportunity, parental love, care, and respect. In our discussion, Angela mentioned that those with grit hold a goal they care about so much that it organises and gives meaning to almost every aspect of their life. In fact, she has been known to use the words voluntarily obsessed. I get that obsession, determination and holding steadfast to goals is likely to increase your chance of succeeding in that specific goal. But I wanted to know, are there other impacts to grit? Does too much grit lead to a loss of life balance? Negatively impact relationships or burnout? In other words, is there a dark side to grit? You know, I think that um, the quarantine in a way is a really good example of how passion is in some ways a double-edged sword because if you're like super, super committed to being a chef, for example, right, just to take the obvious and, you know, you can't do what you've been doing for so long and it's like your identity is wrapped up in it you know, that's going to be harder for you than somebody who's like, oh yeah, I have this job, but I'm just home collecting a check. And like, it's not part of my identity. I'm just like chilling. So I do think passion can be really difficult, especially when you're being frustrated from doing your passion and doing it well. Mm -hmm. And maybe the answer is this, is that I think if people ask the question, like, why am I passionate about this? Like, you know, oh, I really love to take care of people. That's why I love food, right? Then it allows you a little bit of creativity and flexibility to say like, okay, like this isn't working out right now anyway, how else can I get there? So having some clarity about your passion at the deepest and highest level, the most abstract sense, I think is really helpful. 
After my conversation with Angela, I couldn't turn my research brain off. Was there a link between grit and burnout? My prediction was that yes, there would be. If somebody is voluntarily obsessed in a way that that goal gives meaning to every aspect of their life, surely that individual has no balance. Surely that individual doesn't have a full life, can't hold the big picture perspective, and that that in turn would lead to increased stress, overwhelm and burnout. But what I found surprised me. Whilst there was some variation in the research, the majority of studies seemed to show that grit was inversely related to burnout. In other words, the grittier you are, the less likely you are to suffer burnout. Going back to some of Angela's words, she says that yes, perhaps you can be too stubborn about mid-level or low-level goals, that you can throw good money after bad on particular projects that will never make sense. You can be blind to possibilities that you hadn't originally anticipated. However, these, she say, are issues with those low-level goals that are in service of your higher-level goals. I'm now going to put my clinical psychology hat on for a second. I know that without a shadow of a doubt, balance, recovery and perspective are all important for our well-being. Absolutely, let's support children and adults to self-reflect, identify their passion and encourage the teaching of resilience skills. Let's spread that hopeful message that success and achievement isn't dependent on your intelligence, your family's wealth or your contact network. However, alongside this, let's also emphasise the importance of taking mini-recovery breaks. Participating in supervision to objectively assess and reassess goals. Investing in high-quality connections. By practising these psychological skills, you're going to have the energy and the oomph to run the marathon in relation to your passion and your goals, rather than burning out from short sprints. I'm Jackie Maguire, and you've just finished listening to the Grit episode of Mind Brew. Take the chance to complete the post-COVID reflection exercise. Pay deliberate attention to what tasks in your life bring you joy, energy, and spark. Journal about your long-term goals. And if you have children, ask their teachers about how they weave grit into the classroom. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more, please head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. I'd also appreciate if you'd share this episode with your network. It's very much appreciated. Thank you, and hopefully see you again.